0: Convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see what sites you visit and then sell that data to third parties. Go to expressvpn.com gold and get three months free on a one-year package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Indeed. Attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend countless hours looking for candidates with the right job skills. Start hiring right now at d.com peter. Offer good for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. We only have one trading day left to go in the month of October. And not only haven't we had a crash in October, something that I've been alluding to the possibility of all month, but we are in fact on pace for the best October in the history of the Dow. In fact, if we don't crash on Monday, this is going to be the best month. For the Dow in over 30 years think about that and also think about all the bad news that came out on the month not only on the month but on the week in fact yesterday we had more bad news but the market shrugged it off and moved higher not only did the market finish the week with its biggest weekly gain since June but this is the longest weekly winning streak since November of 2021, where the Dow has now gained four consecutive weeks. The Dow Jones finished the week up 5.7%. S&P 500 up 3.8%. The Russell 2000 won the week with a 6% rise, but bringing up the rear was the NASDAQ with just a 2.2% gain. Although the very speculative stocks in the NASDAQ The Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF was up 8.4% on the week. But if you look at the monthly gains so far, and again, we have one day left, so I'll talk about the entirety of the month on the next podcast. But the Dow Jones, if it ended the month on Friday, it was up 14.4% on the month. The S&P up 8.8%, once again, winning the month, the Russell 2000, up 11%, but the NASDAQ not only bringing up the rear, but actually declining by 2.1% on the month. Now, the ARC Innovation ETF actually managed to eke out a 3% gain on the month so far, so lagging behind a lot of the other indexes, but still moving up with the NASDAQ moving down. And the reason for that is that the problem this month was with big tech, companies that actually have earnings and those earnings missing expectations, whereas the stocks that Kathy Wood owns in ARK Innovation, many of those stocks don't have any earnings at all. And so they didn't have the problems that we saw in big tech. But I think more significant, too, is the rotation that we saw on the month. And I've been talking about this All year, in fact, for over a year on my podcast, the rotation is from the growth stocks to the value stocks. Investors are moving out of hype and momentum into real value, into real dividends. And why is that happening? That is because interest rates have moved up. And so we're no longer pricing stocks based on a fantasy. Plus, we now have a cost of capital. There is an interest rate with which to discount future earnings. So the future earnings that growth stocks are promising to deliver have a much lower present value in today's world of a positive interest rate than they had in yesterday's world where we had 0% interest rates and money was free. But if this rotation is going to continue And I believe that it will. I think this is early in this rotation, and it's going to last for years and years. It's going to span the entirety of this decade, I think. But it also means that the major stock market averages that are really dominated by these momentum growth-oriented names, they still have a long way to fall from here. First of all, taking a look at where the markets stand today, after this big monthly rally, the Dow Jones is down 11% from its high. So out of bear market territory, but still in correction territory. S&P 500 down 19%. So it barely made it out of bear market territory, but I think it's still in a bear market. And I think the Dow Jones still is too. It's just enjoying a correction, and up move in a bear market and that's what all of this month was i think was a correction in bear market the russell 2000 despite its big move on the month is still down 25 percent from its high, so solidly still within bear market territory but the nasdaq composite is down 31 percent from its high because it added to its declines on the month. And Kathy Wood Arc Innovation, well, it's bringing up the rear. It's down 75%. But despite these big drops, the markets are still very expensive. I dug up a few statistics just to drive this point home. So I only look back to 1995. So I wanted to look at more modern statistics. So during the era of relatively low interest rates, the Greenspan era, but going back to 1995, well, here are some very interesting and disturbing market statistics. And by markets, I am talking about the MSCI, US Large Mid Cap Market Weighted Index. The average price to earnings, and this is actually earnings before interest and taxes, so IBIT, but the average price to IBIT was 14.1. The current ratio is 19.6. So in order for the market to return to the normal ratio, we need another 28% decline from here, not from the highs, but from where we are right now. Even worse, if you look at the price to sales ratios, again, going back to 1995, the average price-to-sale for the market was 1.8 times sales. The current price-to-sales ratio is 3.2 times. So to return to normal, going back to 1995, the market needs to fall another 44% from where we are right now. That is still a long way to go. Now, the only way that you can justify a market this expensive is if interest rates go back down because the only reason we had such high multiples whether it was price to earnings or price to sales it was all a function of 0% interest rates well we don't have 0% interest rates anymore interest rates are 3 and a quarter at the fed funds level and they're supposed to go up to 4% next week look at the yield curve. We're looking at 4% interest rates across the curve. Those rates were less than half of that a year ago and were much lower than that for most of the time period that we're looking at when we had much lower price-to-earnings and price-to-sales levels than we have right now. But if interest rates stay where they are or continue to move higher which is the most likely path, at least given what the Fed has been saying thus far, and given the inflation numbers that we have, then we have a long way to fall to get back to normal. But there is no reason why the market should be priced at a normal valuation, given the adverse circumstances that are now taking place. We have the highest inflation in 40 years, maybe the highest inflation ever. The Fed has a monumental task in front of it if it's actually going to deliver on its promise to bringing inflation down to two percent so if you believe the fed that they are every bit as resolute in their commitment to bring inflation back down to two percent and they're going to do whatever it takes to achieve that goal then you have to concede that the market is not going to fall to a normal valuation but a below normal valuation. In other words, we should have a price-to-earnings ratio below the norm. We should have a price-to-sales ratio below the average because obviously these averages mean that at times since 1995, the P.E. was lower than average or the price-to-sale was lower than average. Why? Because during those periods of time, the markets were under adverse circumstances. Well, I can't think of more adverse circumstances than the ones that the market is operating under right now. And so if during times in that time period, we had a market that was cheap relative to its historic averages, we should have a market getting cheap again relative to its historic averages. But not only is the market not cheap, not only is it not averagely or fairly valued, but it is still extremely expensive. So we have a market price for perfection, and we have anything but perfection in the current circumstances. And so what this is telling me is that investors still don't believe the Fed, or they believe that the Fed will be able to quickly bring inflation down to 2%. And after it does that, it's going to be able to return interest rates back to their artificially low levels. We're going to go back to zero or near zero, and we're going to go back to quantitative easing. because without interest rates in QE, there is no way to justify the current valuation of today's market. But if investors believe that, they are wrong. First of all, they're wrong if they believe that the Fed is actually going to bring inflation back down to 2% because it's not going to get anywhere near 2%. But they're also wrong to think that even if the Fed succeeded in bringing inflation back down to 2%, that we could have a return to those abnormally low interest rates, and inflation would stay at 2% or lower. Neither of those outcomes are possible. The only way the market could be correct in attributing these high valuations to today's market is if I'm right about what happens, that the Fed pivots and gives up the fight against inflation, even though inflation never returns to 2%. In fact, inflation gets higher then the eight and three quarters, which I think was the high so far on the CPI. So inflation is going to break out to new highs, yet the Fed is going to give up that fight and is going to go back to monetary stimulus, even though inflation is getting worse. But in the event that that does happen, there is still no way to justify these high PEs. Under the environment that I am envisioning, PEs are still going to come down price to sales are still gonna come down. The only way to justify the current level is if the Fed is able to return to those artificially low interest rates in QE and inflation goes back down to 2% and stays there. But as I said, that is impossible. So there is no actual way that you could justify the current valuation of the U.S. market. So valuation levels have to come down. Now, that doesn't mean that prices have to come down. Because price and value are different. Because inflation is going to drive the price of everything up, including stocks. But if I'm right about that happening, then what you're going to see is the gains in the stocks like those that are in the Dow Jones, and you're not going to see the gains in the NASDAQ-type stocks. That rotation and that divergence in performance is going to accelerate in the environment that I see coming, where we have the Fed- conceding the fight against inflation, so inflation wins and the Fed loses, and so investors are looking for real hedges. They want to get out of paper into real assets, which would include ownership of real businesses, but that would be ownership of businesses with real assets, tangible assets that are selling products that people have to buy, not products that people want to buy and that they only buy with the money they have left over after they finish buying all the stuff they have to buy. So it's going to be back to basics, bricks and mortar, and it's going to be buying value, selling growth. But again, if those trends are really going to be in momentum, the real value play is overseas. It's not in the U.S. market. It's in the foreign markets. And if the Fed does what I believe it's going to do, that is bad news for the dollar. The dollar is going to fall, and that is going to further accelerate the relative appeal of non-U.S. investments. And so more investors are going to be moving money out of U.S. stocks into foreign stocks to get better valuations and higher yields. And, of course, foreigners who have a lot of their money invested in U.S. stocks, they're going to be dumping their U.S. stocks and bringing their money home where they can avoid foreign exchange-related losses but also enjoy better valuations and higher dividend yields. Think about how much time you spend on your phone and more important, all the things that you do on your phone. What most people don't realize is that what your cellular carrier is doing is not only collecting all that data, but selling it to third parties. A lot of people may not like third parties knowing what they're interested in or what sites they visit. But for me, one of the more important parts is that I don't want the government getting this information either. We don't have much privacy left anymore, but at least ExpressVPN gives you the opportunity to try to preserve what little we have left. Your cell phone provider doesn't like to admit it, but the more information they get on you, the larger their paychecks become. That's one of the reasons why I use ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. ExpressVPN is an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and then sell the data to third parties. All it takes is one tap of a button and all your network data gets encrypted and rerouted through ExpressVPN secure servers for ultimate privacy. Not only does it shield your web browsing, ExpressVPN protects all your network data so you can stay private even when you're using your favorite apps. Whether you're an iPhone, Android, or even a tablet user, ExpressVPN works on all your devices. The best part is that one subscription can be used on up to five devices at the same time. I have my whole family using ExpressVPN, too. When your phone carrier tracks you, that's a gross invasion of privacy. You can either keep letting them cash in on it, or you can visit expressvpn.com gold to get the same VPN I use. Take back your online privacy today and use my link to get three extra months free. That's expressvpn.com gold. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-M dot com gold. Expressvpn.com. Slash gold. But getting back to the markets, the Dow ended the strong month with a better than 800-point rise on Friday. That was good for 2.5%. The Nasdaq actually rose by 3% on Friday, despite horrible news. In fact, the biggest bombshell was dropped by Amazon, which reported after the bell on Thursday. And Amazon had a horrible warning for Q four. Not only did they miss on Q three, but they guided lower on Q four. The analysts had been estimating that Amazon would earn four point seven billion in the fourth quarter. And instead, Amazon said we're not going to earn four point seven billion. We're going to earn somewhere between zero and four billion. Now, first of all, I don't even think that should count as guidance because if you're telling investors we could earn anywhere from zero to $4 billion in a quarter, you basically have no clue what you're going to earn. You're not giving any guidance at all. You're telling people, hey, anything could happen. It's a total crapshoot. We might make $4 billion or we might make nothing at all. There is nothing for an analyst to hang their hat on there. So really what Amazon did is they withdrew. Their guidance and said we have no idea what we're going to make, but the most we may make is four billion, which is seven hundred million less than what the street expected. Now, as soon as that news came out, Amazon shares crashed by better than twenty percent in after-hours trading. But by the time we had the huge rally on Friday, Amazon shares only closed down by seven percent. But that's still a big drop. And the after-hours drop bought the stock to its lows. And Amazon wasn't the only big company to disappoint. You had Apple also coming out with worse-than-expected earnings, although Apple stock ended up shrugging off those worse-than-expected earnings and finished positive on the day. Apple was up 7.4% by the time they closed. But getting back to Amazon, the reason for the miss and for the lower guidance for Q4 was twofold. First of all, customers are buying less and Amazon's costs are rising. Now, why is that happening? Well, it's been happening for the very reasons that I've been pointing out on this podcast. Amazon customers are broke. They're spending more money on food, on energy, on rent, on insurance, and they don't have enough money To buy stuff on amazon meanwhile the cost of sales are going up amazon's costs are rising their labor costs are going up their transportation costs are going up so they're getting squeezed on both ends and that's why their profits are going down but inflation is not just taking a big bite out of amazon's profits or out of apple's profits it's taking a big bite out of the profits of all of the fang names two of the other fang names also reported worse than expected earnings this week and had initial big declines i'm talking about alphabet and meta formerly google and facebook and these companies having the same problem also something that i've been talking about quite a bit on this podcast and that is advertising advertising revenue is plunging why well because consumers are broke and so there's no point in advertising to broke consumers and also you have all of these companies that are advertising to the same customer base and they have growing competition because one of the other fang names netflix recently introduced advertising to their customers because netflix was having to increase the price of their subscriptions a lot of people were dropping out. And so in order to entice them to keep their subscriptions, they have a lower tier, which includes advertising. But now Netflix is selling advertising to the same advertisers that were buying advertising from Meta or Alphabet. And there's only so much blood you can get from a stone. Everybody is counting on revenue from the same group of advertisers and all of those advertisers are counting on sales from the same group of customers. And so this whole thing is imploding and these stocks are deep in bear market territory. And I think they still have a long way to fall. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one time service, Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the Personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for my listeners today. Get 20 off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/gold and use the promo code GOLD at checkout. The only way to get 20 off is to go to joindelete.me.com/gold and enter code GOLD at checkout. That's joindelete.me.com/gold code GOLD. Taking a look at these FANG stocks individually, let me start off with Apple because Apple is sometimes considered the second A of the FANG stocks. And Apple is only down 15% from its highs. Now, it would have been in bear market territory had it not been for the 7.4% rally on Friday. But I think this stock is still headed lower. As much as I love Apple and their products, and I use a lot of their products, I think the company's stock is overpriced and overowned and is headed lower, but Apple is still holding up a lot better than the real Fang names. Meta in particular, which used to be the F in Fang because it used to be called Facebook, but now it's Meta. That stock is down 72% from its highs. And one of the big problems highlighted by their recent earnings report were the massive losses coming from the reality labs division. That's where they're working on the Metaverse project. Well, that division bled $3.7 billion in red ink in Q3, and more blood is going to be spilled in Q4. So this is a huge bet that Meta is making on the Metaverse, but there's no clarity as to when, if ever, that bet is going to pay off. Sure, personally, I believe one day in the future, Ready Player One could become a reality. But right now, it's still science fiction. And the problem for Meta investors in an environment with rising inflation and rising interest rates is that the money that Meta may eventually earn at some distant point in the future doesn't have anywhere near the value that investors were assigning to that future earnings potential in the era of 0% interest rates and QE. And even if we return to QE, you're not going to be able to justify those valuations in a high inflation environment. Amazon, the A in FANG, down 45% from its high and much lower prior to that pretty big recovery on Friday that saw the stock close down just 7% after having been down more than 20%. Netflix, down 58% from its high. And Alphabet, formerly Google, which used to represent the G in Fang, is down 36.5%. And again, Alphabet is experiencing the same type of problems as Meta when it comes to advertising. Their revenues are down because their customers are broke. Now, was it all bad news for tech on Friday? Intel beat and the stock was up 11% on the day but Intel in a very different situation than some of these other tech stocks that we're missing. And I think the strength in Intel is more the exception to the rule than some type of indication that tech has found a bottom. And that's why investors should still be selling tech stocks and buying value stocks. One type of value stock investors should still be buying are energy stocks. Look at Chevron hitting a new all-time record high on Friday. In fact, the entire energy sector has been doing extremely well. Look at ExxonMobil also hitting a new all-time record high on Friday. But what's significant about ExxonMobil is back on August 31st of 2020, it got booted by the Dow Jones. They decided that two oil companies was too many for the Dow 30. So they got rid of ExxonMobil, leaving the Dow with just Chevron. Now, in perfect form, what did the Dow Jones people decide to replace Exxon with? A tech company, Salesforce. And so Exxon was out, Salesforce went in. Well, let's take a look at what happened to these two stocks in the just over two years since the Dow Jones made that decision. Now, obviously, they made that decision because they thought it would help the Dow Jones. They didn't kick out Exxon and put in Salesforce because they thought that move would hurt the Dow. They were making a strategic adjustment into believing that Salesforce, a technology-based company, would be more important to the future and therefore more relevant to the Dow Jones industrial average than a old-fashioned, true industrial stock like ExxonMobil. But if you go back to August 31st and look at the price of these two stocks, Salesforce, with a very appropriate symbol, CRM, is down 40% from the end of August 2020. In contrast, the price of ExxonMobil is up 177%. CRM went from 272 down to 163, And Exxon went from $39.94 up to $110.70 yesterday's close. A great way to illustrate the significance of this change. Think about an investor who had $10,000 invested in ExxonMobil and decided to follow the Dow Jones lead and sell. Is ExxonMobil and put that $10,000 into Salesforce instead. After all, these Dow Jones people are smart. They must know what they're doing. They think Exxon is a bad investment. Let's get rid of it. Let's make this shrewd investment in salesforce.com. So if you did that and copied the Dow Jones, here is where you would be. So the $10,000 that you invested in Salesforce would today be worth $6,000. But Had you left your $10,000 in Exxon, it would now be worth $27,700. That is a huge difference. You're almost five times better off having stayed in ExxonMobil than having switched into Salesforce. And in fact, it probably is five times when you throw in the dividends that you would have earned over those two years because ExxonMobil, even today, After going up, 177% is yielding 3.3%. But if you bought your shares of ExxonMobil on the very day it was kicked out of the Dow Jones, your dividend yield is just over 9%. So in other words, that yield added about 18% to your return over the past two years, bringing the total two-year return to about 195%. That's even without the compounding. That's almost a triple in contrast the dividend yield on Salesforce is zero because it pays no dividends. So if you still own your ExxonMobil at the price from the day it was kicked out of the Dow, you're still getting a 9% return on your investment, even if the stock doesn't go up at all. Whereas you earn nothing on Salesforce if the stock doesn't go anywhere because there's no dividend. And that shows you the power of dividends and why more and more people are gonna be ditching these non-dividend paying stocks like Salesforce and buying dividend payers like ExxonMobil. Except for investors who really want high dividends, There are companies outside the United States that pay much higher dividends than Exxon. In fact, there are oil companies outside the United States that pay higher dividends than Exxon. Pretty much all the companies that you could buy outside the United States are going to pay higher dividends than the ones that people are buying inside the United States, which is why there's going to be a major rotation, not just out of momentum into value, but out of U.S. into foreign. Another problem, though, for these oil companies having record profits and their stocks hitting record highs is that Congress may use these record profits and high stock prices to blame the oil companies, for high gas prices. After all, they're gouging their customers. That's why they have record profits. And maybe we need windfall profit taxes. We can't let these greedy oil companies get away with this. We need to take these profits away that they never should have earned, and we need to rebate it back to the people so they can afford to pay higher gas prices. Now, not only would this be bad for investors if something like that were to happen to oil companies, but it would be very bad for for Americans, particularly for consumers who need oil, because if we punish the oil companies and take away their profits, well, then they're not going to invest in increased production. What's going to happen right now with these record high profits is it will incentivize future production to increase, but it also rewards investors for risking their capital in this sector. And if we want investors to continue to risk their capital exploring for oil, then we have to allow them to enjoy the returns on those investments when times are good. We can't force oil investors to suffer losses when times are bad and then take away their profits when times are good. If there's no way for oil investors to win, then they're not gonna invest in the sector and we're not gonna make America more energy independent and we're gonna end up with less domestic production and higher prices. But getting back to the stock market, which was rising all week in the face of bad earnings, it was also rising in the face of bad economic data. Though in fact, investors may not have been ignoring the bad economic data and the bad earnings. The market may not have been rallying despite all that bad data, But because of that bad data, it's possible that investors were, in fact, buying all that bad news. And that's because the bad news indicates that the economy is weakening. And if the economy is weakening, well, that may motivate the Fed to pivot. And as I said in my last podcast, I think we already had a soft pivot. I think what's going to follow up is a hard pivot. And I think that is the foundation upon which this current stock market rally has been built. Rapid growth for your business doesn't have to come with growing pains. When you have ambitious hiring goals, what you need is a partner to help you achieve them. What you need is Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed's instant match assessments and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job. What I really like most about Indeed is how they allow you to do all of your hiring in one place. And there's no need to make your candidates jump through hoops. Indeed's virtual interview tool means there's nothing to download. Just click and talk. And with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. And there's no need to install anything extra Indeed's virtual tool works right from your browser. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for the quality applicants from resumes in their database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per applicant price. Not available for everyone. If you need to hire, then you need indeed. I want to take a little time to point out some of the bad economic data that came out since my last podcast on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we got the advanced look at the international trade deficit in merchandise. This is excluding the surplus that we have in services. And the estimate for the September deficit is was 87.8 billion and that would have been a slight widening from the 87.3 billion in the prior month and instead the trade deficit swelled all the way to 92.2 billion dollars much worse than expected in fact it blew away the upper range of estimates which went from 85.3 billion on the low end to 89 billion on the high end and if you look into the components of the trade deficit imports Rose 0.8 and exports fell 1.5%. So we're buying more stuff, selling less stuff abroad, trade deficit goes up. This is bad news for the economy and it will ultimately subtract somewhat from GDP, but it also is more indicative of the problems that we're going to see going forward as these trade deficits get bigger and bigger and bigger. We did have a slight reprieve in the third quarter where we saw these trade deficits coming in lower than expected. We had a pretty sharp reduction in our trade deficit. And I think that was in large part the result of two things, the big spike in interest rates, which inhibited consumption because Americans were paying much higher interest and other prices that went up. They cut back on their imports. Plus, I think we imported a lot earlier after the economy reopened from COVID, and so we had front-loaded some of those imports. And so we had this huge surge in our trade deficits to record highs. And then we had a bit of a pullback in the third quarter. But we also had the big strength of the dollar. And a strong dollar brings down the cost of our imports. And so if it didn't cost us as much to import stuff, that helped reduce our trade deficits. And of course, it's a two-edged sword because a strengthening dollar also makes American exports more expensive to foreigners who might otherwise buy them. And so it could diminish demand for our exports, but it certainly makes our imports cheaper, increasing demand, and we have much bigger imports than we have exports. And so the strong dollar is going to have a favorable impact on our balance of trades, but the strong dollar is going to have a positive impact on our balance of trade. But The strong dollar is not going to last, and ultimately, a weak dollar is going to drive the trade deficits to new record highs. And one of the reasons for that is the trade deficits are again rising, even with the strong dollar, and so these higher deficits put more dollars into global circulation. And that means a lower price, all else being equal. Now, the reason we haven't seen that is we still had all this safe haven buying of the dollar. The people have been buying the dollar based on a hawkish Fed. But with this soft pivot and with a hard pivot to follow, all that dollar demand is going to go away. And instead of buying the dollar, investors are going to run from the dollar. As a matter of fact, we did get the economic data for Q3 GDP came out the following day on Thursday and we broke the losing streak of negative GDP numbers from Q1 and Q2. We actually had a 2.6% increase in Q3 GDP. The consensus estimate was for an increase of 2.3. Remember the prior quarter was -0.6 And the quarter before that was minus 1.6. Now, I had been predicting a negative quarter for Q3. So I clearly got that one wrong. But I was predicting that we'd have a negative Q1 and Q2 in advance of those quarters. So my batting average is still pretty good right now, having gotten two out of the last three correct. But the only reason that we had positive GDP growth in Q3 was the big improvement in the trade deficit a hundred percent of this improvement came from the shrinking trade deficit. So if you throw that out, we didn't have GDP growth. We had a GDP contraction. Now, of course, you can't throw that out. that wouldn't be fair, but it is important and very relevant to point out where it came from because that is a one off thing. We are not going to see continued improvement. In the trade deficit. In fact, the number that we just got shows you that we're already seeing renewed deterioration. And that is why I'm going to go out and state that I believe that Q4 GDP is going to be back in negative territory. Now, the Atlanta Fed has come out with their early forecast for Q4 GDP, and they're at 3.1%. But remember, they always start out high. And then as the data comes in, they start lowering and lowering the bar. And by the way, even with the 2.6% growth in Q3, if you factor in the reduction in Q1 and Q2, overall, GDP growth has been flat all year. So there's been no growth in the US economy. So even if we're not in a recession, we're damn close to one. And most economists believe a recession is coming soon. And so if we're not already in one, we soon will be. But I think we're in recession. I don't care about this one number. And of course, I don't even think these numbers are accurate because I think the GDP deflators are underestimating the price increases. So I think what's really happening is inflation is inflating the GDP. I think in real terms, if we had a more honest deflator, we would see an even bigger contraction. But if we end up having a negative quarter in Q4, that will be three out of four negative quarters on the year, and that'll bring my batting average up to 750 if I get it right. Of course, if we end up with a positive quarter, I'll drop to 500, which is basically like tossing coins, right? It's 50-50. But I think regardless of what these numbers are, this is a recession, and this recession is going to get worse in 2023 than it has been in 2022. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdrafts up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. Also on Thursday, we got the durable goods orders from September, and those numbers also came out below estimates. The consensus was for a 0.6% rise for September, and instead we rose by just 0.4%. Ex-transportation, the expectation was for a gain of 0.2. We ended up with minus 0.5. That was well below even the lower range Of estimates, which went from a negative 0.2 to a positive 0.5. And then on the core capital goods number there, instead of the 0.2% rise that they were looking for, we got a 0.7% fall, again, well below the low end of the range, which went from a high of plus 1% to a low of minus 0.2. And to add insult to injury, we downwardly revised the prior month's number from up 1.3% to up just 0.8%. Then finally on Thursday, we got the Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index, and the consensus was for positive three, which would have been an improvement from the positive one from the prior month. And the range of expectations went from a minus five to a plus four. We actually came out at minus seven, So not only below estimates, but below the lowest estimate of the consensus range. Then on Friday, we finished out the week with even more bad economic news. We got the personal income and spending numbers for September and personal income matched expectations. It rose 0.4, but spending exceeded expectations. Instead of a gain of 0.4, it rose 0.6. And in fact, spending from the prior month was revised up from 0.4 to 0.6. But why is spending going up? Is it because people are buying more? No, they're probably buying less. They're paying more, and that's why they're spending more. In fact, if you look at the inflation numbers that are contained in the report, the PCE was up 0.3% on the month. That's in line with expectations. Year over year, prices rose 6.2%. That's slightly below the 6.3% expected, but it matches the 6.2% increase for the prior month. Again, looking at the core on a month over month basis, up 0.5 in line with estimates, but the year over year core up 5.1, lower than the 5.2 estimate, but higher than the 4.9% increase from the prior month. So, core PCE rising more in September. Than it did in August, so in other words, the Fed is not making progress in fighting inflation, it is falling further behind the inflation curve using its favorite indicator, the core PCE, as a measure of its success, or in this case, lack thereof. But I think the most important part of this report is the part that gets no coverage in the media, and that is the savings rate. Because as spending continues to outpace incomes. Because wage gains are not nearly large enough to offset price increases, consumers are dipping further into a very shallow savings pool to make ends meet. The savings rate dropped again to 3.1. This is the lowest it's been in decades, and it's very close to breaking the all-time record low of 3%. And in fact, I think we will break that record low by the end of the year. And again, all this is indicative of a very weak economy, but it's also indicative of the fact that the Fed is making no headway in his fight against inflation. Because as I've explained many times on this podcast, the Fed is not going to succeed in bending that inflation curve and bringing the rate back down until it changes consumer behavior. People have to spend less and save more. Well, they're not saving more when the savings rate is at record lows. We're going to have to see a big increase in savings to see a big drop in inflation. And consumers are not going to be saving because times are good. They're going to be forced to save because times are bad and they need to build up their savings and they're going to have to stop spending, especially if real interest rates are allowed to rise to levels that they need to be to actually discourage consumers from borrowing to spend. This whole fad of buy now and pay later has to go away. You can't buy now and pay later. That's inflationary. In order to bring down inflation, people have to save now and buy later. And then finally on Friday, rounding out the week, we got the numbers for pending home sales. The index collapsed by 10.2% in September. That's almost triple- the 3.8% decline that had been expected. And that comes on the back of a decline from the prior month, which was originally reported as down 2%. It was slightly revised to being down only 1.9, but pretty much almost as bad. But the September crash brought the index down to 79.5. That's the lowest it been since 2010, excluding one month, during the peak of the COVID lockdown where you had that spike move lower, which was a one-off event and which really shouldn't count. It should be thrown out. So you're looking at a level we haven't had since we were coming out of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis and real estate bust. And this bust is just getting started because real estate prices are going to follow sales lower. And so Americans are going to see a reduction in, in their personal wealth. They've already seen it with the big drop in the stock market, in particular, the Fang stocks. I already went over that because those are the stocks that most Americans own the most of and other money-losing companies that have been going down. So Americans are seeing their stock portfolios go down, and now they're going to start to see their home equity go down as well as rising mortgage rates bring down home prices. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be saying, oh, this is good news on inflation because home prices are coming down. No, home ownership costs are still going up. That is the connection that a lot of people are still not making. I talked about it on my previous podcasts, but even if home prices come down, the cost of home ownership continues to go up because the cost of buying that lower priced home is higher with higher mortgage rates. Plus, you have to pay higher insurance on your home. You have to pay higher utility bills on your home. You have more expensive maintenance costs on your home. You have higher property taxes on your home. So everything about the cost of owning a home is going up. That is why the price of a home has to go down. And that is why inflation is going to be so painful for most Americans, because it's going to force the value of everything they own to go down, but the price of everything that they have to buy to go up. Now, next week, it's widely anticipated that the Federal Reserve is going to be raising its Fed funds rate by another 75 basis points. They have a two-day meeting that ends on November 2nd, and that afternoon, they will announce the decision. And I believe, though, that investors are expecting the Fed to also indicate that the soft pivot has in fact taken place by telegraphing that they are making some headway on inflation and that future rate hikes will not have to be as large as past rate hikes and maybe not as large as they had previously thought. In fact, it's even possible that we could get a surprise from the Fed and that they only hike by 50 basis points. The Bank of Canada did that already last week They were supposed to hike rates by 75 basis points, and they only hiked by 50 basis points. We had a similar surprise in Australia, I think, the prior week. They were supposed to do 50, and they only did 25. So maybe the Federal Reserve will do the same thing. And also what's important to remember is that the elections are coming up the following week. On November 8th, we have the congressional midterm elections, And I've always believed that the Federal Reserve tries to help whatever party happens to be incumbent, in particularly whichever party holds the White House. So I think there's probably a lot of pressure on Powell to try to do something to help Democrats on November 8th. And a big issue in this election is inflation. And it would help the Democrats out if Powell could make some comments about the positive impact Fed policy is already having on inflation so that the Democrats could claim credit for that improvement. And so there could be some positive talking points on inflation going in to the midterm elections where the Democrats can say, aha, you see, we've made a lot of progress. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. So reelect us and we'll continue to make progress because right now Democrats' chances of holding control of Congress are are sinking rapidly. Again, I went on the limb in this podcast when the Democrats were still favored to win the Senate. And I said, I thought that the Democrats would lose because I thought the Republicans would pick up steam heading into the election based on weakening economic data. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, if you look right now at the betting odds for the Republicans to win the U.S. Senate on Predict It. This is the highest I've seen them. To bet Republican, you have to pay 72 cents. To bet Democrat, you only have to bet 32 cents. If you go back to August, it only cost 36 cents to bet Republican. Republicans were the long shot. And in September, it would have cost you 67 cents to bet Democrat. Yet here we are at the end of October And the Republicans are a bigger favorite to win now, a week before the election, than the Democrats ever were. Of course, if you look at the House of Representatives, you have to pay 90 cents to bet Republican, yet you can buy the Democrats for a mere 12 cents. This is the most expensive the Republican bet has been, and the cheapest the Democrat bet has been. Basically, the Republicans are a 9-to-1 favorite to win the House, and they're probably going to pick up more seats than just about anybody imagined. So they need a Hail Mary, and maybe they're counting on the Fed to deliver that, which may happen in the form of a 50 basis point rather than a 75 basis point rate hike and some positive talk on the fictitious progress that the Fed will claim is being made On inflation, so that the Democrats could claim credit. And I also think a lot of the market participants are anticipating something like that coming out of the Fed next week. That's why instead of selling stocks into the Fed meeting, they are buying stocks into the Fed meeting. And it's not just the stock market where that view is being reflected. Look at what happened to the dollar on the week, even though the dollar was up on Friday. It dropped during the week. The dollar index fell from 112 Friday last week to 110.67 to close this week. And in fact, yesterday, we got all the way down to 109.5 on the dollar index. So it was breaking pretty hard. Same type of action in the bond market. We saw a decent drop in bond yields on the week. The yield on a five-year treasury went from 4.35 to 419 the yield on a 10-year Treasury went from 4.2 down to 4. And on a 30-year Treasury, it went from 4.3 down to 4.13. Again, maybe anticipating a less hawkish Fed. And again, ignoring the increase in oil prices. Oil prices went up from $85 to $87.90, so almost $3 increase on the week. And I expect a continuation in the rise in oil as well as all other commodities, especially if we get any indication from the Fed that it's easing back on its policy. Now gold was not able to rally on the week. It actually fell by ten dollars, but a hundred percent of that happened on Friday where gold was down eighteen bucks. So as of Thursday, gold was still positive on the week. It closed at sixteen forty-five. But what's significant though to me is that gold mining stocks were higher. The GDX closed the week up one and a half percent. Now, that's not much compared to what happened in the overall stock market, but at least it shrugged off the drop in gold and went higher. And I think one of the reasons that gold lost some of its luster on Friday was this huge rally in the stock market that really stole some of gold's thunder, and it made gold stocks look less appealing when you had this huge bear market rally in some of these tech names despite bad earnings in other areas of the market. So I think that drew interest away from gold. But I think that interest is going to come back pretty strong in the remaining two months of this year. And so I think we're going to see higher gold prices and even bigger moves in the gold mining stocks. But I want to finish up today's podcast by talking about Twitter, because this was the week where Elon Musk took ownership of Twitter. The deal went through. Twitter is no longer a public company. It is now privately owned by Elon Musk. And I'm not really sure who else is a part of the buyer group. By the way, I'm about to hit 850,000 followers on Twitter. I really want to get up to a million. So if you're not now following me on Twitter, please do so and tell your friends and get them following me too. Anyway, a lot of people are pointing out, aha, Peter, you see, you got this one wrong. You said Elon Musk wasn't going to buy Twitter. And that's another thing you got wrong because he bought Twitter. Well, yes, I got that wrong. You can't get everything right. But in defense of my position, I still don't think that Elon Musk intended to buy Twitter, and he ended up buying it anyway. In fact, he tried to get out of it. I don't know if it was just a case of buyer's remorse, but he clearly wanted out Or at a minimum, he wanted to pay a much lower price because the main reason I said that I didn't think Elon Musk wanted to buy Twitter was because he was overpaying. Now, if he could have gotten Twitter on the cheap, well, then maybe he would have bought it. But I just didn't think it made any sense to pay such a high price for a stock that I knew that if he just waited, he could have bought it a lot cheaper and he could have. Based on what's happened to so many other social media companies that rely on advertising, had Musk just waited he could have bought the stock much cheaper. Now, in defense of Elon Musk, he sold a lot of Tesla stock a long time ago when he first made the offer to buy Twitter. And that stock has dropped basically by 50% or so, I think. So he sold a lot of overpriced Tesla stock to buy overpriced Twitter shares. So six of one, a half dozen of the other, maybe Elon Musk will come out okay in the whole transaction. But I always said as a Twitter user, I was very much in favor of Elon Musk buying Twitter, and I'm glad that he owns it. Even though I thought it was a bad investment for him to make, I thought it was good for Twitter users and maybe good for the world to have this company owned by Elon Musk. And so I'm very happy about that. And in fact, I congratulated Elon Musk and wished him luck in a response to a tweet that Elon Musk specifically addressed To Twitter advertisers. Now, I'm not a Twitter advertiser. I'm a Twitter user. But I read the entire tweet. It's very long. And I really liked what I read. And Elon Musk made it clear that even though he may have overpaid for Twitter, that he didn't buy Twitter purely as a financial decision. In other words, there's more to money here when it comes to Elon Musk's buying of Twitter. And when you read what he wrote and some of the other things that he's been tweeting, I believe him. I think Elon Musk legitimately wants to do something good for society, not that he already hasn't done a lot of good for society in businesses where he is motivated by making money, but I think his primary motivation here is to do good rather than to make money, though in capitalism, you make money when you do good, and I hope Elon Musk ends up doing both, and again, I wished him luck in response to this tweet. And Elon Musk replied. It was a short reply. It was just one word, thanks. And it was accompanied by a smiley face emoji with some tears. But that was a much better reply than the last one I got, which had no words and just had one emoji. And it was an eggplant. And so I think being tweeted a smiley face is a big step up than being tweeted an eggplant. And by the way, there were over 40,000 people who replied to Elon Musk's tweet with a comment. He had 730,000 likes, 135,000 retweets, so it was a very popular tweet, but over 40,000 people wrote him a reply. And of those 40,000 people, only two merited a reply from Elon Musk. There was one other person and then me. So one thing I know for sure is that I am on Elon Musk's radar because this is the second time he replied to one of my tweets. And if he was able to reply to one out of 40,000 tweets, then he's paying attention to what I'm tweeting. Now, he's not actually following me yet on Twitter. Hopefully one day he will officially follow me. But now that I know I've got his attention Maybe I could do a little bit to help influence his thinking because he is a very important person in the world today. And if I can have any influence on the way he thinks, then that in and of itself will have a positive impact on the world. You never know. He may even start listening to my podcast. Who knows? Maybe he already is.